Okay, so this is our continuing discussion of Simon Dome's individuation in the light of notions of form and information. Um, we're on part one, chapter two, uh, and then section two within that chapter. So we, we saw last week, we, we were discussing the photoelectric effect, which is an effect that occurs when metal is, uh, various metals are um, illuminated by uh, a light beam. They emit photons, uh, sorry, they emit ele electrons. This effect has some sort of paradoxical properties, uh, and these were what led to the introduction of the notion of a photon as a, a, a particle of light. After in, in um, Einstein's paper in 1905, he first introduces the this term. I don't think he uses the term photon, but he um, introduces the idea of a discrete quantity of action of light, um, which is what is now referred to as a photon. So in this uh, <clears throat> in this section. The sort of introductory question uh, that Simondo is posing is whether, whether or not whether or not the notion of photon should be understood as referring to a real entity. Um, so we can we can use it in physics. We can use it um, as a sort of as if concept. We can uh, calculate the properties and, and make predictions based on the um, conception of light as consisting of these uh, corpuscles. Uh, of energy or these discrete um, components of light, but the question is whether we should really we, whether we should grant that um, discreteness or corpuscularity of light uh, a status of reality. Uh, and Simon is going to argue that um, we should not. And this is a would certainly be a controversial position today. I think uh, the the general consensus among physicists is that their photons do have uh, the status of reality. We'll see what arguments uh, Simon Don has to uh, has to bring for those for that position. Um, yeah, so that's the sort of framing question of this uh, section and then we'll get into some of the the details. Um, so basically the structure of the argument is first he sets out the motivation for the position uh, of a, or for positing a photon. That's what we started seeing last week. And then he's going to explain why, why we shouldn't grant the status of reality to the photon um, in the sort of a second stage of the argument is um, a little bit compressed, I think, but we'll see it as we get to it and uh, try to evaluate its, its uh, validity. Okay, uh, so we ended on page 102 last week. But we we just read through some uh, part of 102 uh, pretty quickly right at the end, and we didn't have much time to discuss it. So we decided to go over it again today. Um, so I'll start from 102, and uh, and then we'll go around with the the reading as usual. Okay. So it starts uh, sort of in mid in mid uh, thought here. So um, we have to remember from last week's uh, discussion. Um, Consequently, it could be supposed that luminous energy transforms in the plate into a potential energy that makes possible the modification of the state of relation of an electron with the particles that constitute the metal. This would make it possible to understand that the place of free electrons does not intervene in the determination of the phenomenon, no more so than the density of photons per unit of surface of the metallic plate. We will then be referred back to the case of the relation between a structure and an amorphous substance which manifests as a continuum, even if it is not continuous in its composition. Here, the electrons manifest as a continuous substance because they submit to a distribution that conforms with the law of large numbers in the metal plate. This ensemble constituted by the electrons and the metallic plate in which they are randomly distributed 
can be structured by the addition of a sufficient quantity of energy that will allow the electrons to escape from the plate. The disorganized ensemble will have been organized. Nevertheless, this hastily presented thesis should be critiqued. There are, in fact, other ways of increasing the metallic plate's potential energy, for example, by heating it, then starting at temperatures between 700 degrees Celsius and 1,250 degrees Celsius, we witness a phenomenon called the thermoionic effect taking place, and it is more appropriate to call it the thermoelectric effect. Electrons spontaneously escape from a piece of heated metal. When this metal is covered with crystallized oxides, the phenomenon takes place at a lower temperature. Here, the changes in distribution occurs without the intervention of any condition besides the elevation of temperature, uh, at least in appearance. However, the energetic condition, namely the temperature of the metal that constitutes a hot cathode, is not sufficient by itself. The structure of the metal surface is also involved. In this sense, we presume that a cathode can be activated by the addition of metal traces, for example, those of strontium or barium. Thus, even in the thermoelectric effect, there are structural conditions for the emission of electrons. However, as in the case of an amorphous substance that passes to the crystalline state through the spontaneous, and even today unexplained, appearance of crystalline germs in its mass, the structural conditions of, a, of the thermoelectric effect are always present in ordinary conditions when these conditions are energetic. They are present at least on a large scale for a hot cathode with enough emitting surface, but they are present in a much more discontinuous manner on a small scale. All right, so he's bringing back some of the concepts from the previous chapter about uh, the conditions for individuation, the, the three slash two conditions. Um, so sometimes um, we have uh, structural, material, and energetic conditions, and sometimes the material and energetic are sort of combined together. Um, but um, so here he's he's looking at the um, emission of photons um, in the photoelectric, the emission of electrons, sorry, in the the photoelectric effect, and trying to analyze analyze this process uh, in terms of the conditions that he had set out in the last chapter. So he says that we have something like an energetic condition uh, in the sense that the free elect electrons in the metal um, play the role of a continuous uh, amorphous substance. Um, uh, so even though the electrons themselves are discrete um, particles, the fact that they, um, they're they operating uh, in accordance with the law of large numbers um, means that they uh, have a, a continuous effect. Uh, so they they... Uh, sort of simulate a, a continuum, um, as as we saw in the previous chapter, we're talking about the amorphous substance, which is composed of of many molecules, but um, acts as a continuum uh, in the individuation process. Um, so here it's the electrons that are uh, the free electrons in the metal that are acting as a continuum, and then he points out that, or he he suggests that maybe this. Uh, energetic condition, um, the addition of energy to this continuum would be enough for uh, the emission of, uh, of a, an electron from the surface of the, of the metal. And he says that this is only uh, correct at a sort of first approximation because uh, we find that there are actually certain conditions of the surface as well that um, will uh, favor or disfavor the emission of electrons. Um, so there, are, there is a structural condition um, in addition to the energetic condition. So um, the two sort of main conditions, the, there's no uh, reference here to a material condition, but the two primary ones um, 
are are still uh, valid in this case as well. And uh, another point is um, when he introduces this thermo thermoelectric effect. Um, so the the name thermoionic is the one that's uh, the standard name of this effect um, in in physics. But it is, uh, as Simon Nong points out, it, it's a little bit misleading because um, this effect consists in the way that metal will emit electrons if it's heated. Um, so the the photoelectric effect was um, light beam uh, uh, illuminating a piece of metal with a light beam will uh, will uh, bring about the emission of electrons um, from the surface of that metal. And now we have uh, the thermoelectric effect is um, when the metal is heated, uh, it emits electrons. Um, uh, yeah, it's the same idea as uh, in the, in uh, pyroelectricity in crystals that we saw um, mentioned um, in the last chapter. The, yeah, and the thermoelectric effect is um, is behind uh, various technologies like um, a, a vacuum tube, um, which involves heating um, a metal filament, and uh, and then that that metal filament emits uh, that's the the cathode end of the tube that emits electrons um, that are um, captured by the anode end of the tube. So yeah, this is, this effect has uh, a lot of technological uh, relevance, um, um, and yeah. So the reason why calling it thermoionic is is misleading is because it's not actually ions that are um, emitted. It's um, it's the electrons that are emitted uh, uh, from the metal surface. But for whatever reason, the name thermoionic is the the standard name for this effect in in physics. Um, so if you if you want to like look this up and, and get more information about it, you have to look uh, under thermoionic effect. But yeah, so the reason for introducing this second effect um, is that uh, the hypothesis that Simon Don is discussing um, with relation to the, the photoelectric effect was that um, was that the uh, light uh, intervenes into um, into the process of emission by um, adding to the potential energy in the uh, in the um, continuum of electrons in the, the metal. Heating the the electron or heating the metal, sorry, would be um, a, a, an alternate way of um, increasing the potential energy of the um, continuum of electrons. Um, so. Um, he's going to suggest in a little bit that um, we should see an interaction between the two uh, effects. Um, so it should be the case that um, heating a metal too close to um, the threshold for the thermoelectric effect should make it um, make the metal more susceptible to uh, releasing electrons in the photoelectric effect if uh, if his explanation for the, the photoelectric effect is correct. Um, and so that's something that um, I'm not sure if that's actually been experimentally tested. It would be interesting to um, look into that. Uh, he does, well, anyway, we'll get to that in a little bit, but he, he points out there's some obstacles to the experimental realization as well. Um, yeah, so the, the thermoelectric effect or thermoionic effect is introduced here as um, an alternate method of adding potential energy to the um, energetic condition or the, the continuum of the electrons in the metal surface. Right, so yeah, this this bit is uh, talking about the uh, energetic 
uh, condition of uh, of a process of individuation. Um, and he so he, he points out or suggests that the the thermoelectric effect looks as if it's um, the energetic condition alone that is oper- is operating um, uh, at sort of a, a first glance it, it looks like that but then he points out that um, there actually are there actually uh, there actually is a structural condition um, as well as the energetic condition so that um, adding traces of different metals to uh, to that surface um, will bring about um, will will make it m- more likely that electrons will be emitted or will make the emission rate higher or, or so on we have both uh, an energetic condition and a structural condition here um, and uh, the same thing is going to he's going to make that same argument for the photoelectric effect as well Okay, so let's go on to the next page or so uh, of this multi-page paragraph. Um, if someone else would like to read, uh, and if you're muted and would like to read, uh, just post something in the chat, and uh, I'll unmute you. Uh, if by means of a focusing apparatus, an electrostatic or electromagnetic lens, we project onto the fluorescent screen electrons emitted at the same instant by the different points of a hot cathode, so as to obtain, a, obtain an enlarged optical image of the cathode. What we will see is that the emission of electrons by each point is extremely variable according to the successive instance. The emission takes shape like successive craters of intense activity. And these craters are highly unstable. If an anode is set up in proximity to the cathode in an empty enclosure with enough difference of potential to collect all the emitted electrons, saturation current between the anode and cathode. The total current gathered shows fluctuations that arise from these intense local variations of the intensity of the thermoelectric phenomenon. The larger the cathode surface, the weaker these local variations are with respect to the total intensity. This phenomenon is perceptible in an electronic tube with a very small cathode. It has been sufficiently studied recently under the name of scintillation or quote-unquote flicker. However, all the points of a cathode are under the same thermal energetic conditions in approximation with very small, with, with very small differences as, as a result of the metal's elevated thermal conductivity. Uh, even if we suppose slight differences of temperature between the different points of the surface of of the surface of a cathode, we could not thereby explain the abrupt and important changes of intensity of the emission of electrons between two neighboring points. This is why the thermoelectric effect depends at least on another condition besides the energetic condition, which is always present. The bright and fleeting craters observed in the electrical optic apparatus described above correspond to the appearance or disappearance of this condition of activity on the cathode surface in a certain determinate point. The study of this phenomenon is not sufficiently advanced for us to specify the nature of these germs of activity, but it is important to note that they are functionally comparable to the crystalline germs that appear in a supersaturated amorphous solution. The nature of these germs is still mysterious, but their existence is certain. Nevertheless, we should ask if in the photoelectric effect, lighting merely acts uh, by increasing the energy of the electrons. 
it is interesting to note that the that electrons escape perpendicularly to the surface of the alkaline metal plate. It is rather regrettable that the elevated temperatures necessary to obtain the thermoelectric effect are not compatible with the conservation of zinc, cesium, or cadmium cathodes. For temperatures barely lower than those in which the thermoelectric effect begins to manifest, we could attempt to see if the minimum frequency of light producing the photoelectric effect would be lowered, which would show that the escape energy had lessened. If this were the case, it could be concluded that there are two terms in the electron's escape energy, a structural term and, a, and in fact, a term representing a potential. I'm turning the page. However, even in the absence of more precise experiment, it is possible to glean from this example a certain number of provisional uh, conclusions relative to the study of physical individuation. This is the, the bit that I had mentioned uh, previously where he, he suggests uh, an experiment. Well, actually, there are, there are two different experiments that he suggests here. One uh, which is um, that has been done and one that um, at the time he was writing had not been done. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's been done since then. Um, so the first setup is um, you have um, a hot cathode. So you have a, a piece of metal um, that is heated to the point of emitting uh, electrons. And then you have a fluorescent surface. So a surface that emits light whenever uh, it's struck by an electron um, that allows you to obtain an opt opt optical image of the uh, hot cathode. Um, and when you do that, what you find is that um, there's a, um, a series of um, sort of flashes, uh, he calls them craters um, uh, of activity um, on the surface so that you get, um, if you have a, a rectangular, rectangular image of the cathode, for example, um, you'll have different points of the rectangle will be lighting up at different moments. Um, and uh, so there's, there's uh, changing activity um, on the cathode surface uh, that's reflected onto the, um, that is um, uh, shown on the fluorescent surface. Um, and um, so he points out that um, the energetic condition is the same across the whole cathode. Uh, it, it's at the same temperature because metal, uh, metals in general have a high uh, thermal conductivity. Um, so the surface should all be at the same temperature um, with only very minimal variation of temperature. Um, and even if we do suppose that there is a variation of temperature, um, it doesn't explain the uh, um, very quick uh, uh, flash and then uh, cutoff of the flash. Um, um, the temperature changes gradually, um, but we have these um, sudden uh, appearances of these uh, craters, as he calls them, and then the, a disappearance. Um, so the the energetic condition, the um, heat uh, or, or the temperature of the uh, of the metal um, is not sufficient to explain the the effect. Um, there, there's some sort of structural effect uh, which he compares to the the germ uh, that brings about crystallization. Um, uh, so there's some sort of structural effect, but it's uh, it's not known um, what exactly it consists in. Um, the, 
this this structural condition is mysterious, as he says. It's it's not uh, hasn't been studied yet, but um, something about the surface uh, brings about the formation of these craters um, or these uh, bright flashes uh, of activity uh, of emission of electrons um, successively in one place and then in another um, over the surface. Um, so, so this the the point here is basically that um, that there's um, uh, the second condition, the structural condition, in addition to the energetic condition in the uh, in the thermoelectric effect. And then he goes on in the the second half of the page to look at um, or ask the same question about the photoelectric effect. So, um, is it is it the case that um, the photoelectric effect acts just by raising the potential energy of the uh, um, contained in, in the continuum of electrons um, or is there a structural condition uh, in the photoelectric effect as well and then he points to um, what would be a, a possible um, a possible um, experimental test would be to heat uh, the metal to um, to um, a temperature close to the uh, threshold for the thermoelectric effect, so just below that threshold, um, and then try to produce the photoelectric effect. And uh, he's predicting that, or or he's suggesting it would be uh, uh, interesting to try to find out whether the photoelectric effect has a lower threshold frequency uh, when the metal is heated, uh, which would suggest um, that both the, the photoelectric effect and the thermoelectric effect are acting by increasing the potential energy in the, the metal. Um, and so there would be a sort of reciprocity of one to the other um, that uh, if you raise the potential energy through heating the metal, that means that um, it takes less energy to, uh, to make the metal emit uh, electrons. Um, uh, but he points out that um, this uh, experimental test would be made difficult by the fact that um, metals like zinc or cesium or cadmium um, are um, uh, are not um, uh, the the melting point is um, below the point where the uh, the photoelectric or the thermoelectric effect occurs, um, so that you can't have a, a cathode. Um, 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 made of these metals that would um, uh, be able to to uh, be maintained at that temperature. Um, so um, I'm not sure if there's a way around this, uh, some sort of experimental setup that would be able to um, uh, get around the this issue. Um, I guess potentially you could have a, a liquid metal surface and, and have that um, be undergo the, the photoelectric effect and, and see what happens uh, in that situation. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure if this has been tested or not. Yeah, and, uh, and Angus made a comment in the chat about um, the way that uh, in this example, um, the structure seems to be already present in the metal and it's the energetic condition that changes around it. Whereas in the case of the crystallization example, um, it was the energetic condition that was structured by the introduction of a germ. Um, hmm, I'm not sure if that is um, exactly right because here, so in both cases, we have a germ that appears in this um, sort of mysterious way. Uh, and we saw in, um, 
in the form information potentials text uh, uh, discussion that we um, that we read uh, a couple months ago, um, he sort of uh, suggests that there might be something like uh, a, a role of chance in the formation of these structural germs. Um, but then he he sort of um, he says something like, I, I hesitate to ascribe a, a role to chance in this process or something like that. I, I don't remember the exact wording, but um, he uh, points to something like chance, but then uh, kind of hesitates to actually uh, um, uh, posit that role of chance. Um, so in, in both the crystallization example and the example uh, under discussion here, uh, there, there is this uh, appearance of these uh, structural germs, um, which then brings about um, a structuring of the energetic condition, uh, or uh, which uh, which interacts with the energetic condition to bring about a, a structuring of the amorphous substance. Uh, in this case, the the swarm of electrons. Um, so I think in both cases, it's uh, uh, the structuring germ that uh, brings about the um, the structuration. So I, I don't think the the structure is already inherent in the metal. Um, um, it's uh, yeah. So it's it's the this new germ that appears that brings about the structuring process. Okay. So I think we can go on to the next page if someone else would like to read. Indeed, we see a very remarkable type of relation in the photoelectric effect. From an energetic point of view, all the free electrons that are in the illuminated metal plate are like a single substance. Otherwise, we would be unable to understand how there could be an effect of the accumulation of luminous energy arriving on the plate up to the quantity of energy necessary for the escape of an electron to be received. There are cases where the phenomenon cannot be considered as instantaneous. Thus, in this case, the luminous energy must have been stored in reserve beforehand. On the other hand, this energy supposes a communication between all the free electrons, for it can be conceived with great difficulty that the energy has been supplied by a photon that would have taken longer to act on the electron than the speed of light would allow us to calculate. If the relation between light and an electron occurs more slowly than the speed of light allows, this is because there is no direct relation between light and the electron, but a relation through the intermediary of a third term. If the interaction between the photon and light is direct, it must be short enough for the photon between the beginning and end of the interaction to be to still be practically in the same place. Here for the displacement of the photon, we are limited to rehashing the reasoning that has led to the adoption of the idea that the photon can manifest in any illuminated point. But if it is acknowledged that the photon can manifest its presence everywhere at the same instant on a plane perpendicular to the direction of displacement, it cannot be acknowledged that the photon can stay in the same place during the entire duration of a transformation. If, for example, a transformation lasts one one-hundredth of a second, a photon would have had enough time to travel 3,000 meters between the beginning and the end of this transformation. This difficulty is avoided if we suppose that between the, the light and the electron, energy is summated in the milieu in which the electrons are. This summation would, could occur, for example, as an increase in the amplitude of an oscillation or in the frequency of a, of a rotation. In the latter case, for example, the frequency of light would intervene directly as a frequency and not as a scalar quantity. If a direct role of frequency is admitted, we no longer have to represent a photon whose energy would be represented by the measure of a frequency. Frequency is the structural condition without which the phenomenon of structuration cannot take place. But the energy intervenes as a scalar quantity in the number of electrons extracted per unit of time. 
According to this representation, it would be necessary to consider an electromagnetic field as possessing a structural element and a pure energetic element. Frequency represents the structural element, while the intensity of the field represents its energetic element. We are saying that frequency represents the structural element, but not that it constitutes the latter. For in other circumstances, this element will intervene as a wavelength during a propagation in a, in a determined milieu or in a vacuum. A, dif a diffraction by the crystalline network involves this structure as a wavelength relative to the geometrical length of the crystalline lattice. So here he is bringing up reasons to think um, that the relationship between uh, the photon or um, the, the light um, uh, impacting the metal surface um, and the electrons within that metal surface, um, he, he argues that this uh, interaction is not a direct interaction, but it, it's mediated by uh, some, a, third, um, a third interval, um, the, the medium uh, in which the electrons occur. So there's something like um, um, uh, the electric field um, uh, in which all the electrons uh, are contained and, and that they interact with. Um, there's something like uh, a structural element um, to that field um, so that the, the light is interacting with the, the field uh, itself and uh, only through the intermediary of the field does it interact with the electrons. Uh, and the reason for that he suggests for this um, is the, the time interval that it takes for this interaction to occur. Um, so the photon, um, um, the photon concept was supposed to explain how this um, uh, energetic transfer occurs or the transfer of energy occurs from the light beam to the electron um, in this uh, discontinuous way. Um, so that uh, it's only if the, uh, if the light is of a certain frequency, uh, is, is above a certain frequency, the threshold frequency, um, then the uh, photoelectric effect occurs and there's an emission of electrons, um, but below that frequency, there's no uh, photoelectric effect. So there's a discrete um, on-off uh, sort of effect. Um, and so that's what the, the photon concept was introduced to explain. Um, uh, but um, the the problem is that uh, it, the photon is supposed to be traveling at the speed of light. Um, so if the interaction uh, between um, the photon and the electron is is uh, taking place uh, in even as short an interval as um, one hundredth of a second. Um, then the the photon still has enough time to travel two thousand uh, three thousand meters um, during that time interval. Um, so you can see already that um, uh, if if the interval is any longer than that, then you have uh, even greater distance that the photon is going to be traveling in that time. Um, so it, the fact that the um, emission of electrons takes time. Um, uh, suggests that um, there's something like a, a summation that's going on. So the the uh, the field uh, is absorbing energy uh, over a period of time, and then once it reaches that threshold, it will emit uh, where one of the, the electrons will be emitted from the surface of the metal. Um, so there there's that summation effect uh, over time. 
um, uh, which um, uh, which constitutes the um, oh, sorry, and and then um, the second point that he makes there uh, after the, the the introduction of the thesis of of the summation uh, effect, the the second point is that um, this uh, summation can be thought of as um, uh, um, an increase in amplitude of an oscillation or a frequency of a rotation. Um, so if we uh, um, if we have something like um, an interaction between the light uh, and the electron um, um, in which the frequency is, is one of the components, um, we are now able to represent that frequency um, as intervening uh, in the process as a frequency and not just as a scalar quantity. So in the more standard uh, representation, um, the, the frequency really only intervenes as something uh, which um, is multiplied by the Planck constant to give us the energy of the, of the photon um, and what it, energy it contributes to the uh, potential emission of an electron from the metal surface. Um, but in, in this suggestion, if we understand um, the summation process as something like um, the increase in frequency of a rotation, then the frequency of the photon would actually be uh, intervening in the process as a frequency and not just as a scalar quantity. Um, so that um, this, um, this frequency um, aspect uh, in the field would be the structural element, um, or sorry, would, would represent the structural element as he puts it, he's a little bit more careful than that. Um, and then the intensity of the field would be the, would represent, would represent the energetic element. So there would be both a structural element of the field, um, which corresponds to frequency and an energetic element of the field, which corresponds to um, the intensity of the field. Um, so he's, um, again, positing these two conditions, the energetic and the structural, um, and he's leaving out the, the third condition that he had uh, pointed to in the case of the crystallization example, the material condition. Um, so the question uh, from Angus in the chat is, um, when Simon Don says that, uh, that frequency represents the structural element, is he just clarifying that this is the structural element in this case, but not others? I think, I think what he, what he's suggesting is that um, the the structural element um, appears in the form of frequency in, in certain circumstances, like in the case of the photoelectric effect, but um, it appears as wavelength in other circumstances, um, like in the case of the uh, diffraction by a crystal, um, as he points to at the top of 105. Um, um, but uh, wavelength and frequency are, are reciprocal uh, of one another. So this is a little bit um, pedantic, I think, to, to make this distinction uh, uh, or to, to sort of insist that we only say it represents the structural condition. Um, um, so wavelength is the reciprocal of uh, frequency um, so that the... Uh, um, in the case of the diffraction of the crystal, you can still represent it in relation to the frequency. You just have to you know, uh, flip the, the equation over um, 
So it's it's not it doesn't make that much difference one way or the other. I'm not sure if there's other anything other than frequency or wavelength which plays this role of representing the structural element in the fields. Um, if if there is, then it would make more sense to um, to say that frequency only represents the structural element. Um, but he doesn't give us any other examples at this point. And uh, he's going. They're going to have. We're going to see more about frequency in the next in the rest of this uh, subsection. Um, so uh, he's going to um, give a, a further justification for um, wanting to uh, understand frequency as um, as acting um, in the process in the photoelectric process, not simply as a scalar quantity, but um, as a as a frequency as such. Um, so we'll see more on that in the next little bit. Uh, I can read again. Uh, we're on the top of page 105. Uh, the interest in a representation of structure linked to frequency is not merely that of a greater realism, but also that of a much broader universality that avoids creating arbitrary categories of electromagnetic fields, something that seemingly ends in quite a paralyzing substantialism. The continuity between the different manifestations of electromagnetic fields of varied frequencies is established not just in theory, but also by scientific and technical experimentation. If, as Louis de Broglie does in Onde Corpuscule, Mécanique Ondulatoire in Figure 1 between pages 16 and 17, we inscribe the uh, logarithmic scale of frequencies, the different discoveries and experiments that have made the measurement of an electromagnetic frequency possible, we see that there is a fully established continuity between the six domains initially considered to be distinct, Hertzian waves, infrared, visible spectrum, ultraviolet, x-rays, and gamma rays. As technicians were going lower in frequency with the domain of waves theoretically discovered by Maxwell and effectively produced by Hertz in 1886 with a decimetric oscillator uh, Righi, Righi? Um, an Italian physicist from Bologna, uh, establishes the existence of waves measuring 2.5 centimeters. In a work published in 1897, he showed that these waves are interme intermediary between visible light and Hertzian waves. Uh, they possess all the characteristics of visible light. The title of this work, Optique des Oscillations Electriques, is quite important for it shows an attempt to unify two domains that were at that time experimentally separate. Although they had been conceptually joined together in Maxwell's remarkable electromagnetic theory of light, optics, and electric electricity. Following the path opened up by Rigi, Bose, and Lebedev endeavored with the aid of the apparatus Bose constructed in 1897 to repeat Hertz's experiments on the refraction, diffraction, and polarization of electromagnetic waves. These two researchers managed to produce electromagnetic waves six millimeters long. In 1923, Nichols managed to produce waves 0.29 millimeters long. One year later, 
Glyc Oliva Arcadeva attains um, 0.124 millimeters. And yet, through optical methods, Rubens and Bayer in 1913 had already been able to isolate and measure a radiation of 0.343 millimeter wavelengths in infrared radiations, <clears throat> surpassing the simple analogy of the properties of propagation. The two forms of energy previously isolated as two genera, or at least two species, would partially overlap in extension from 0.343 to 0.124 millimeters of wavelength and would be identical in comprehension as much for the genesis as for the study of quote-unquote properties, thus showing the fragility of the thought that proceeds via common genus and specific difference. Right. Um, I posted in the, the chat uh, a picture of the electromagnetic spectrum, which is what is being discussed here. Um, so the um, again, we, we just um, saw the, the introduction of the, the notion of frequency acting um, not as a, a pure scalar quantity, but as frequency as such. Um, and um, uh, Simon Dong's argument uh, for uh, for this hypothesis is, um, um, well, first he, he suggests that it's a, a introduces a, a greater realism, um, but um, he also um, he also suggests that um, it allows a greater universality, um, precisely because we can uh, represent um, all the frequencies uh, along this spectrum. As uh, as part of the as, as involved in the same type of operation, um, so um, basically what he goes through here is a, a history of, of the um, filling in of this diagram. Uh, so what what happens is that um, you have different physical processes that emit uh, radiation at different wavelengths, um, um, and uh, over time, physicists were able to uh, extend the range of, of these of the wavelengths produced by different processes uh, in, until they overlapped. Um, so, um, what what he calls your Hertzian waves uh, or radio waves, what we would call it, um, uh, uh, come to overlap with uh, infrared uh, radiation produced by optical means. Um, uh, and, and so there's an overlap between the one and the other. And uh, we have the same type of phenomenon that happens with other portions of the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, and what that shows is that there's a, a continuity across the electromagnetic spectrum so that there, there's, a, um, there's, no, um, there's no inherent difference between one portion of the spectrum and another. Um, there, the differences that we... Uh, uh, or the different categories that we attribute to uh, visible light or or gamma uh, rays or or microwave radiation or whatever other forms those are all relative to um, uh, human biology or or various technical operations that we use to produce uh, electromagnetic radiation in that wavelength um, but there's a, a continuity across the whole spectrum in terms of the fundamental physical uh, reality at work um, and then he, so he introduces, or he, he just mentions here that um, this uh, mode of, of thinking uh, 
is not doesn't operate by uh, genera and species. Um, so it's not that uh, electromagnetic radiation is the genus, and then the species would be uh, visible light and uh, microwave radiation, etc. Um, it's actually a, a continuum uh, uh, where all the the, the basic um, physical properties of the electromagnetic spectrum are the same across the whole continuum. And uh, we only divide it up in various ways for, uh, for technical purposes. Um, so we've seen, uh, I think previously, a few occasions where he's criticizing um, genus and species uh, classification um, as, a, as a mode of thinking. Um, and uh, so this is another instance of that. And he's going to introduce uh, transduction or um, He's going to point to the transductive nature of this uh, uh, process through which the, the spectrum is filled in. Uh, and now maybe I'll say a little bit more about the transduction here. Um, it, it's, uh, it's always, for Simon Don't, it's always contrasted with uh, induction and deduction. Um, and uh, what's characteristic of induction uh, for Simon Don is the way that um, there's an inverse relationship between the comprehension and extension of concepts so that um, as a concept becomes more precise, uh, it gains in, comprehen in, in uh, comprehension. So there's more, uh, um, there are more properties that are uh, subsumed under that concept uh, um, or the concept itself becomes richer, you can say. Um, but that means at the same time that fewer entities fall under that concept. Um, so if you if you start from a concept like NAML, uh, and then you introduce um, uh, I don't know a, a particular a particular kind of NAML, um, a, a dog um, has more the concept dog has more uh, richness or or more uh, attributes more properties to something than the concept NAML does. Um, but then there are fewer uh, individuals that fall under the concept dog than the concept mammal. Um, so there's this inverse relationship. The, the more entities fall under the concept, then the less comprehension the concept has. Uh, and then the more comprehension the concept has, the fewer entities fall under it. Uh, and, and this uh, inverse relationship is, is characteristic of induction. Um, so we proceed from individuals, we abstract away from certain of their properties so that we can uh, um, classify them under a shared concept, and then we do the same thing with those concepts uh, uh, to produce the, the genus uh, under which they fall. Um, and uh, uh, so again, this is not what what happens when we um, when we uh, have the the concept of the electromagnetic spectrum because we don't. Um, there's no such thing as. Uh, uh, there's not a, a genus electromagnetic wave and then a species uh, of visible light and, and radio waves and so on. Um, they're all continuous uh, and it's just the, the difference in wavelength or, or frequency that, um, um, that uh, is the, what passes from one uh, form of radiation to another. Um, and again, it's not a, a deductive process because um, we're not um, we're not uh, starting from one form uh, and then having something like a what what Simon Don calls a transfer of evidence from from one uh, form of electromagnetic radiation to another. Um, 
So in, in a deductive process, we would, um, we would start from something like a, a universal, and then um, we would deduce the properties of the specific uh, from the universal under which it falls. Uh, but that's not what we're doing when we uh, think about the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, we have, again, this continuity uh, rather than um, species and genus uh, classification. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next bit. Uh, if there are any volunteers to read, if not, I will uh, read again. You're making me do all the work today. Um, it's okay. So yeah, we just saw the the um, sort of a sketch of a history of the, the ways that um, the different portions of the electromagnetic spectrum were discovered and then how the, the um, gaps between those different portions were filled in uh, over time. Uh, and so we're continuing from there. Okay. Common genus and specific differences here are on the same level of being. They both consist as frequencies. Extension and comprehension also overlap for the statements of the limits of extension utilizes the same characteristics as definition through comprehension. The intellectual course that the progressive discovery of the continuity between Hertzian waves and the visible spectrum manifests is neither inductive nor deductive, it is transductive. Indeed, visible light and Hertzian waves are not two species not two species of a common genus that would be a genus of electromagnetic waves. No specific difference can be indicated to allow us to pass from the definition of electromagnetic waves to that of Hertzian waves or visible light. There is nothing additional in the definition of Hertzian waves or of light than in that of electromagnetic waves. Extension and comprehension do not vary in the inverse direction as in induction. Furthermore, it can no longer be said that this thought proceeds like deduction through a transfer of evidence. The properties of luminous electromagnetic radiations are not deduced from the properties of Hertzian electromagnetic waves. They are constituted based on the very measure that allows for both a distinction and a continuity to be established, that of frequency. It's because their only distinction is between the frequency and its inverse wavelength that these two physical realities are neither identical nor heterogeneous, but contiguous. This method of transduction allows for the establishment of a topology of physical beings that neither studies genera nor species. The criterion that allows us to establish limits for each domain also allows us to define in inductive language what the subspecies would become without the addition of any new distinctive characteristics and simply through a specification given to the universal nature of comprehension. Thus, in the previous example, if we want to account for the differences that exist between centimetric electromagnetic waves and decametric electromagnetic waves, you will have to resort to this characteristic that will allow us to say why the separative power of an optical microscope is greater in violet light than in red light. It will be revealed that the reflection, refraction, and diffraction of an electromagnetic wave depends on the rapport between the order of magnitude of the wavelength and that of the elements of the matter constituting the mirror, diopter, or network. If we take the example of reflection, for instance, the condition for this phenomenon to occur is that the mirror irregularities must be smaller compared to the wavelength of the electromagnetic emission to be reflected. The optical luster of silver or mercury is necessary for reflecting the violet light of short wavelengths. On the other hand, red light is already suitably reflected by a less highly polished metallic surface. Infrared radiation can be reflected by a plate of lightly oxidized copper. Centimetric radar waves reflect off a non-polished metallic surface. Decimetric radar waves reflect off a finely netted metallic lattice. Metric waves reflect off a trellis of metallic bars. A trellis with broad links made of cables suspended from pylons, or even a row of pylons, suffices for the reflection of decametric or hectometric waves. 
Similarly, it takes the minuscule structure of a crystalline network to diffract X-rays, whereas a network made of lines delicately hand-carved on a plate of metal is enough to guarantee the diffraction of visible light. The metric waves of television diffract off the crenellated pieces of Sierra Mountains, which is a natural network of very large cells. More complex properties, like the rapport between the quantity of energy reflected and the quantity of energy refracted for each wavelength that encounters a semiconductive obstacle, like the complexly structured cantilever-side layer, can be interpreted using a similar method that is neither inductive nor deductive. The word analogy seems to have taken on a pejorative meaning in epistemological thought. However, veritable analogical reasoning should not be confused with the completely sophistical method that consists in inferring identity from the properties of two things that have any characteristic in common whatsoever. The veritable analogical method is rational to the extent that the method of resemblance can be confused and untrustworthy. According to the definition of Bruno de Solage, uh, veritable analogy is an identity of rapports and not a rapport of identity. The transductive progress of thought effectively consists in establishing the identities of rapports. These identities of rapports strictly are not at all based on resemblances, but are instead based on differences, and their goal is to explain the latter. They tend toward logical differentiation and do not at all tend toward assimilation or identification. Thus, the properties of light seem quite different from those of Hertzian waves, even in a limited and specific case like that of reflection on a mirror. A trellis does not reflect light and reflects Hertzian waves, whereas a small, perfectly polished mirror reflects light and almost does not reflect a metric or decametric Hertzian wave at all, and certainly not a hectometric wave. To account for these resemblances or differences is to resort to the existing identity of rapports between all of the phenomena of reflection. The quantity of energy is large when an obstacle constituted by a substance whose singularities are small with respect to the wavelength of electromagnetic energy is interposed into the trajectory of the electromagnetic wave. Uh, I'll stop there because I'll have to keep reading if I don't. Um, so this bit on uh, induction and deduction is, is what I was talking about earlier. Um, so the that um, inverse relationship uh, between comprehension and extension um, uh, doesn't um, obtain in this case uh, of the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, and so that's why we have, or what tells, what shows us that we have uh, a transductive um, process of thought and not a, uh, a inductive or deductive process of thought. Um, so as he says, it, it establishes a topology um, rather than a genus and species relationship. Right, and then the, the, the other, um, so the set of properties um, in, that appears uh, in relation to the electromagnetic spectrum. So he, he points to reflection as um, as the example. Um, so that reflection um, occurs when the um, surface in question or the object in question is uh, um, is much smaller than the the wavelength of the electromagnetic radiation uh, in question. So in the case of um, visible light, you need to have a, a polished metal surface. Um, so silver or mercury um, are, are um, metals that are used uh, in, in mirrors. Um, um, whereas uh, if you're uh, using radio waves, uh, like in radar, um, it will reflect off of uh, even a, um, a non-polished metallic surface. Um, um, and then as you get uh, longer and longer wavelengths uh, of electromagnetic radiation, it will reflect off of uh, even a, um, 
like in the longest ways will reflect even off the uh, the the set of peaks of a mountain range, um, which acts as a uh, as a, a mirror for those um, very long uh, uh, wavelength radiation. Uh, so again, the, the the property of reflection is not something that is uh, that can be understood in terms of genus and species. It has to be understood uh, in relation to wavelength as this continuum uh, uh, in connection with the continuity of the electromagnetic spectrum. Right, and then he he passes on to um, analogy. And if you remember in the introduction, he or uh, previously in the book, he's um, He's referred to transductive thinking as what is valid about analogy, um, so that um, there is this uh, um, maybe a, a, a pre-rational use of analogy um, in the form of um, uh, an identity of rapports or um, uh, thinking in terms of resemblance. So you you understand one thing in, in an analogy to another because they share some property. Uh, they, they resemble each other in this way. Uh, and this is a, a, a confused thinking for Simon Don. Um, it's um, an untrustworthy way of thinking, but transductive thinking is not um, the same thing as uh, merely um, uh, identifying a resemblance between two entities. Um, it, it has to do with uh, uh, a rapport of identity or, or relation of identity between them um, so that um, what it means is that the relationship that obtains in one entity is uh, analogous to the relationship that obtains in another entity. So we have the relationship between the wavelength of, of light and the uh, property of being reflected from a surface uh, in one instance, and then in uh, another wavelength of electromagnetic radiation, say radio waves, we have uh, another um, property of being reflected by uh, entities with that, um, with that wavelength. Um, so I have, Al Dreams has uh, a hand up. Uh, oh, I thought I had unmuted you already, sorry. I, um, I guess what I'm thinking about is uh, the, like what kind of difference are we talking about here when it comes to transduction? I think, uh, that's uh, that's really interesting. So, if we take the uh, species genus uh, model, um, I, th I guess the way difference works there is, um, it seems to be like like a difference of negation. Something like you know this is not that, uh, and so you know we have all we have mammals, but then some mammals are. Uh, I guess some mammals have fur and others don't, right? So that would be, that could be, I guess, one specific difference. Um, I, I guess, I mean, that's sort of my speculation. Uh, so, you know, we could distinguish between furry and non-furry mammals, and then we can keep going, breaking, breaking down the uh, taxonomic tree. like. Um, and it's, and I'm, I'm wondering, so if we, uh, don't use that model, then in what way are we thinking of difference here? And um, there was a line somewhere, I can't remember now, but uh, I think he says something to that effect here. And uh, I was also thinking, 
um, there's some, I mean, Deleuze discusses this uh, quite a bit in Difference and Repetition, this, this topic. And uh, one example that he brings up, and I wonder if this may be relevant here, is the example of the two hands, which I think is from Kant originally. So if you have a left hand and a right hand, uh, there is obviously a difference there. But the difference it turns out you can't really express it in, in concepts. Um, so I don't know that I understand that example all that well, but um, it seems like, like there's something about, like it's a difference that you can only kind of, um, I don't know, you know, you can't name it a priori. Uh, you have to, I don't know, somehow be immersed in those differences and that's how you generate the knowledge of it. And that's my sense of maybe how transduction works. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, I, I think that they're, they're sort of right about that, All Dreams. I was going to say before, I don't know if it was, um, maybe I missed it or misheard, but I think it's it's rapport of identity rather than identity of rapports, isn't it, from, from the texts? Um, are, are, anyway, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sorry, I'm tired. But the, uh, the, the question I was going to, or, or so the way I was going to intervene on this was um, the, I was reading a little bit of the Combs before this, and she talks about the analogy being about, um, about uh, bringing to, I think she calls it bringing operative, is it operative um, relations together? And that the way that you do that, that, um, you know, when we're thinking about genus and species, it's interesting that you started from the point of con contrari contrarieties, as Angus put it, because I would think that the place that you would start with genus and species is is exactly the thing that sort of, I think, someone who critiques with identity and resemblance of sort of saying, okay, well, this is this is this larger category, and then this thing sort of seems to resemble this thing, and so they must be part of the same category, or they must be related to the same idea, or whatever it might be. But um, when he's saying this, like you have to grasp the process by looking at things that are differential that do not appear to resemble each other. It's I guess it's an it's an interesting uh, approach here because it's again like what, at what point in the frequency spectrum could you point to an individual? Even in the Simondonian sense, like you can't it doesn't you can't really point to an individual that you could then you know, connect to another individual and say, okay, these seem to resemble each other and therefore uh, they must be of the same sort of like piece or they must be of the same nature. It's sort of like you have to be able to look at these things which seem to almost operate different, entirely differently and not see them as entirely different things. But starting from an original intuition, uh, you know, scientifically informed, but an original intuition that there is this process which undergirds all of it, you need to then understand how the discontinuities... You know, it almost strikes me like an earlier statement when he was saying, probably differently, meaning something different here, but when he said, um, you know, that, that we have to be able to conceive of discontinuities as part of a process, you know, or, or as discontinuities as not sort of meaning that there's just separate things, but they're all part of the, uh, a metastable process. Anyway, I'll, I'll try to get the identity of rapport thing down in the text because I was confusing myself with that. Right, yeah. He, so he does say, um, 
veritable analogy is an identity of rapports and not a rapport of identity. So the way I take it is that so a rapport of identity would mean to group a number of uh, entities under one concept and say these are all trees or these are all dogs or whatever um, the concept is. Um, and so they would all be related to each other in, in, uh, under this uh, rapport or relation of identity. Um, they would all be identical uh, as dogs or as uh, trees or, or whatever. But what, what he wants to point to, what is the true form of analog analogical thinking um, is an identity of rapports. So within each entity, there's a, a, this rapport that constitutes it. Um, um, and then th those rapports are related to each other in, you know, uh, this transductive way, uh, rather than something like um, a genus and species uh, relationship. Um, I may have said it backwards at some point, so uh, sorry about that. Um, but yeah, it's it's identity of, of rapports, not a rapport of identity, is the one that um, is the the correct mode of thinking for Simon Don, the transductive. Uh, mode of thinking. And uh, Al Dreams, what you brought up about um, uh, the, that Kant example of the, the two hands, um, that's funny because I that, that example keeps coming up in, in different things that I'm reading or, or in different reading groups that I'm involved in. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I remember in Different in Repetition, um, Deleuze points to that example as a, an instance of difference without the concepts uh, or extra conceptual difference. Um, where, uh, and so for Kant, that example uh, is, is supposed to show that um, that space is uh, something extra conceptual. Uh, it's, it's not, um, uh, and so it, this is a, an argument against Leibniz, um, because Leibniz understood space to be um, a, a purely relative um, phenomenon, so that uh, space just reflects the arrangement of entities, basically. Uh, the relations between entities, and so Kant points out that we we have um, uh, a right hand and our left hand can have all the, all the parts of the hand can have um, the same relations to each other, but uh, there's no way of uh, getting one to the uh, of turning one into the other through space. You can't uh, you can't make them coincide, and this also has uh, relations to uh, group theory um, in in terms of the structure of space and and so on. So this is um, Anyway, it's a very interesting uh, example that Kant brings up, and uh, there's uh, a lot to you can go into in uh, in discussing it. Um, but um, yeah, I think in relation to Simon Don, um, he he doesn't want to um, allow for something like this extra conceptual difference. Uh, I don't think, except in the sense. So Simon Don sometimes uses the word concept in a in a technical sense to mean um, thinking in terms of species and, and genus, and then um, he contrasts that to uh, transductive thinking, which is not conceptual in that sense. But I think what he wants to do is to precisely have a conceptual knowledge of uh, the difference that um, would lie outside the concept otherwise. Um, and, and he thinks that, um, um, as, as we've seen, um, he thinks that we can have uh, an actual um, physical knowledge of individuation and uh, uh, of that difference that is not um, sort of extra conceptual. Um, so we, we can have a, a true knowledge of, uh, 
of the difference that um, would have to lie outside the concept under the genus species model. Uh, I have a question. I mean, regarding like a report of something, I can't, I, I can't, I can't refer to the exact term, but the thing is that my question is that I'm wondering, like, is that the extension of the, the characteristic? I mean, like uh, something hidden or or is it finding there's something hidden? Like what I mean here is that, like in terms of similarities, it can be uh, on the surface and then under the, on the, under the surface, a lot of different dif differences are hidden and then that constitutes all the representative, representative identification, I mean, manifest, manifestation, oh, I, I lost my word. And it, the point point here is, here is that I uh, kind of like, like kind of confusing. I'm what what I want to say is like uh, the mixture of similarities and differences. Like we can see something representative on the surface, and is that kind of like an extension of a particular? Yeah, no worries. Uh, you can uh, sort of reformulate your your question. Um, but I think um, if I understood sort of where, what the direction was that you were going in um, uh, when you talk about um, the way that uh, resemblance can be a, a sort of a surface resemblance and then there's an underlying difference. Um, so he's going to, uh, on the next page, I think, or, or very soon he's going to bring up the, um, the way that um, uh, physicists uh, understood um, a resemblance between sound waves and uh, light waves. Um, so they, they modeled light waves on sound waves um, because of certain shared properties. So they, they were classing them under one concept as, as waves. But uh, Simon Don points out that there was a, a more fundamental or there was an underlying this similarity of, uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, both light and, and sound being waves there was a, a difference between them because light waves are transversal, whereas sound waves are longitudinal. If you try to represent light waves as, as um, longitudinal, then you end up with, um, well, you end up with problems that you can't really resolve that way. So you have to, um, you have to represent light waves as, as longitudinal. So you have to introduce something that is a disanalogy or, or that is a, a lack of resemblance between um, light waves and sound waves. I think that's why Simon Don describes um, thinking in terms of resemblance as being untrustworthy um, in that you can you can sort of notice a resemblance between one phenomenon and another phenomenon and say these th these two things are uh, I'm going to class them under the same uh, concepts and therefore they share all these properties um, but then you can discover afterwards oh actually they don't really share um, all these properties that I thought they did, they only shared the one property that I took as the, the basis of that resemblance between them. Uh, and then you have to um, sort of re reformulate your concepts. Um, whereas in the case of transductive thinking, um, you, uh, rather than proceeding from a resemblance, you're proceeding through something like a, a, a continuity, uh, a, a real physical continuity, um, like the electromagnetic spectrum. And your um, representing the relationship between different portions of that continuum uh, in thought in the same way that they uh, they appear in the, the real physical continuity. Uh, it doesn't have that same untrustworthiness about it. 
you you really helped me to to clarify my thoughts. Actually, actually, that's the point that I, what I wondered. And then, if I ask one more uh, further question, is like, does it have to do with uh, some kind of pre individuality? Like, uh, I I think like it depends on like uh, what kind of pre individuality. Like, uh, for example, an individual or on 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 kind of an entity had like uh the the, the extent the the extent of the extension or uh the the possibility of the transformation or something like that that could be uh dependent upon like individuality the kind and then uh, the quality or something like that yeah i think i think um i think you're right that um there's a sort of presupposition of uh, uh something like a pre-individual continuum here and so it's only um it's only after the fact that we can, uh, I guess, show that that presupposition was valid. So in the case of the electromagnetic spectrum, we can um, uh, bring about experimentally the overlap between the different uh, domains of electromagnetic radiation. So we can produce infrared radiation that overlaps with uh, radio waves. And then we, we show that the, they're part of one spectrum. But yeah, so it's only after the fact. So the this operation of thought, um, this transductive operation of thought only uh, comes into play after the um, the uh, um, experimental production of the phenomena has has happened. Um, uh, so it uh, it's capable of um, verifying, or it can be verified through this uh, experimental uh, process. Um, but uh, in other in other cases, we won't have uh, quite as straightforward a relationship between the uh, uh, the transductive um, the, the pre-individual continuum and the uh, transductive thinking uh, that happens afterwards. Um, so it'll be uh, a little bit harder to verify the, um, that presupposition of the pre-individual continuum. I, I just wanted to say that I feel like that actually is, is really relevant because the, if you think about what we've been discussing sort of since the beginning with ontogenesis and individuation and stuff, like if you think about the example of the crystal, I feel I, I, I'm not sure if this is sort of getting in the right direction, but it seems to me that if you take like the supersaturated liquid and the crystal that forms, you know, between these two things, if you're strictly operating on terms of analogy, you would never put those two things in, in relationship, except maybe from a sort of strict like linear time point of view of that this one thing used to be the other thing, but now it's something completely different. Whereas something like the pre-individual what what's interesting about it is is the fact that it is it remains different so not not only that it remains because it remains throughout the metastable process so it doesn't it doesn't go away it doesn't just become something else and then no, it no longer exists but as it continues to exist it remains it remains different from what it individuates and from the individual and you know in the living being like the examples he gives like it the pre-individual uh potentials, I guess, if you want to call them that, continue to be drawn on for further individuations. But, you know, there's not, there, there continues to not be a, a strict resemblance between the different aspects of the system, it seems to me. And so it's important to kind of, if, if you're ever going to put those things in, in relation, it's like Aldrim said, you always need to think from the point of view of relation in the first place. Relation has to have the status of being. Because if it doesn't, then these are all just sort of accidental observations and these things are only related insofar as they might have been states of one another at different points but 
I think Simon Simon Don is trying to say, well, no, they they their difference and their ability to you know phase shift and all these things like they're it's important that they don't necessarily remain in perfect harmony or resemblance throughout the process and it's it's what allows the process to be what it is yeah i think that's a good way of putting it um and i think this has to do is connected also with um what Simon Don draws i think from Baksan, the um the criticism of the notion of possibility, um, which would be something resembling reality, like it would be a like you know the the traditional um, concept of possible worlds are are um, yes, it was me it was me that brought up uh, Bexon and, and not you, um, but yeah, so the the traditional concept of possible worlds is as a, a state of affairs that resembles uh, the actual state of affairs, um, but with whatever small difference. Um, uh, and this notion of possibility, uh, uh, I think, is is something that Simon Don wants to get away from, and instead um, use this notion of potential, which doesn't necessarily resemble what uh, comes to be uh, uh, or the the actual state of affairs. Um, so we have this uh, non-resemblance relationship between the potential and the actual, um, uh, rather than this uh, sort of um, resemblance relationship between um, the, the possible and the actual. Um, so I think that, that's, I think that's connected as well. Okay, yeah. Um, so let's go on to, um, where did we get to? I think we're right at the top of uh, 108, if I'm not mistaken. There is identity of rapport between, on the one hand, the light wavelength and the dimension of irregularities of the mirror surface, and on the other hand, the Hertzian wavelength and the length of the elementary lattice of the trellis off which it reflects. The transductive method is therefore the application of veritable analogical reasoning. It excludes the notions of genus and species. Conversely, an illegitimate use of reasoning through resemblances is noticeable in the attempts to assimilate the propagation of light to that of sound based on several resemblances, like their reflection on the same mirrors. A watch is placed in the middle of a parabolic mirror. A second similar mirror would allow us to obtain an auditory image of the watch in the middle of the second mirror. It took Fresnel's strength of mind to stop this improper identification by demonstrating that there is a stark difference between the propagation of sound and the propagation of light. Light's elongations are always transversal, whereas those of sound propagating in a gas are always longitudinal. The differences between sound and light in phenomena of polarization were misunderstood due to an identification founded on the most external but also most striking resemblances. This facility that brings us to reason through identification according to resemblances stems from substantialistic habits that lead us to discover not yet known common genera through a random transference of properties. Thus, the notion of ether, which was invented to further perfect the resemblance between the propagation of sound and that of electromagnetic waves, survived well after the experiment of Michelson and Morley and the quite illogical synthesis of the physical properties it conveyed. It was preferable to suppose the existence of a weightless fluid without viscosity, with even more elasticity than steel, to be able to conserve the identity of light and sound. Scientific thought is not a pure induction achieved by a classification founded on differences, but it is also not an identification at all costs. It is instead the distribution of the real according to a measure, a mutual criterion of extension and comprehension. Um, so this is what I had just mentioned about the... Um, resemblance uh, relation between sound waves and light waves and uh, the way that in earlier representations uh, light was depicted as a uh, 
longitudinal wave, whereas uh, we have to instead inter um, represent light as a, a, a transversal wave. So this has to do with the direction of propagation of the wave. So in a sound wave, the, direct, the wave um, is, is propagating in the, the direction of the, the um, uh, sorry, the, the wave um, is in the same direction as the propagation of sound. Uh, whereas in a, a light wave, the wave is uh, perpendicular to the direction of propagation of the, the ray of light. Another example is uh, the the notion of ether, which um, which is uh, which was introduced in nineteenth uh, century physics as um, the medium, or actually, sorry, it preexisted that, but uh, it was sort of uh, widely used in nineteenth century physics as the medium in which light waves would uh, would operate. So that in the same way that um, a wave in the, in water uh, has a has water as the medium. Um, so it consists in the motion of particles of water uh, in, the, in the same way uh, ether would, would be the, the substance which uh, light waves would be a deformation of. What they found over the course of the 19th century was that you ended up having to attribute some very um, hard to reconcile properties uh, to the ether. Um, and in particular, so the, the Mitchelson-Morley experiment um, occurred in the uh, beginning of the 20th century. Um, and it, uh, if I remember correctly, it had to do with um, trying to measure the relationship between the speed of light um, in relation to the Earth's movement. So that if basically, if, you, um, if the, the Earth was traveling in the same direction as a light wave, then their speeds should add together the, the speed of the Earth and the speed of the, of the uh, light wave, whereas if the Earth was moving perpendicular to uh, a light wave, then uh, the uh, the speed should uh, should be independent of the of the motion. Um, sorry, I'm not I'm not explaining that very well. But um, what they found essentially was that the speed of light didn't vary with the the motion of the Earth. Um, so they ended up having to understand uh, the ether as a they had to posit um, this these properties of incompressibility of the ether um, and so on. Uh, so it was this very strange uh, substance which um, would underlie the, um, the, the waves that we know as electromagnetic waves. Uh, and then it is only, it's only after um, the introduction of uh, special relativity that actually, I think it was general relativity that, that um, really sort of, um, put to rest the idea of the ether um, so that um, uh, electromagnetic radiation is understood as um, not, not as a, a wave in an ether, but um, a, a wave in, a, in the electromagnetic field. Um, and so that's, that's really all there is, is just these fields. Um, and there's, no, there's nothing, uh, no substance underlying the, the field. And so this, uh, this is another example that Simon Don gives of um, the untrustworthiness of uh, thinking by resemblance. It was based on the resemblance between um, waves in uh, or light waves and then um, uh, waves in uh, other substances. So the assumption is that we need to have a, a medium. Yeah, um, what I'm trying to figure out um with this, with transvection. Um, so I, to my mind, it's 
fairly, um, you know, discussions that we had earlier explain to me why this is not an a priori reasoning, right? It's not like we have this categorical structure that we begin with and we kind of impose it on things, but it's actually an imminent kind of thinking. Um, what I'm struggling a little bit more with is distinguishing it from induction. And uh, so we said there is that with induction, there is this uh, inverse relationship of extension and comprehension. So the more uh, properties you, um, you add to a concept, the more predicates you add to a concept, the narrower its extension gets until I think there was this ideal of the complete concept, right? Every individual thing would have a complete concept sort of in the end. Um, and here, I mean, I would imagine maybe this is, maybe he'll discuss this later and I'm jumping the gun, but I would imagine that for Simondon, then it's the opposite that as we enlarge the comprehension, we can also uh, um, enlarge the extension of a, of a concept. And um, that's would seem to be then the point of difference from indu inductive thinking. Um, and there's also the last sentence that uh, I think it was Alyosha who read it, um, where he says, scientific thought is not a pure induction achieved by classification found on differences, but it is also not an identification at all costs. It is instead a distribution of the real according to a measure, a mutual criterion of extension and comprehension. It seems like the measure will be doing some important work here. Um, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around that a little bit more. Yeah, the, the notion of measure here has to do with um, the continuity that we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, so um, in the case of the electromagnetic spectrum, it's the, the measure of wavelength or, or frequency. Um, and the way that that, uh, that measure is what underlies the various properties of uh, reflectability, for example. Uh, and um, it's, it's that measure that is more fundamental. Um, it's, it's, the, um, it's what explains the, the, um, the properties that um, are manifested by the phenomenon in question. Um, so that rather than starting from um, the, the properties and then uh, abstracting away from the individual to get to the, the species and, and then the genus and so on, um, we are taking those properties and um, showing this uh, underlying measure that uh, that brings about those properties, um, or the the measure we're measuring uh, the place of the the entity or the phenomenon in question in relation to this continuity. Um, and yeah, so I think we can understand this measure um, uh, as. Um, the identity of rapports so that um, there's a um, a certain measure of the wavelength of the radiation and then there's a measure of the um, um, uh, the fine greenness of a of a, a lattice or um, uh, a crystalline network or whatever it is um, and, uh, and there's a, a identity between those two uh, relations 
I just also want to bring up measure is kind of an interesting word because it, it maybe incidentally kind of calls back to probably one of the th basic insights of, that I, as I understand it, of like quantum sciences and of, of quantum mechanics and whatnot, that the, you know, on the most basic level that, uh, you know, in, in those experiments that we, I think, know pretty well with the slit experiment and some other experiments as well, that there is no separation of measurement and the phenomenon observed and that, you know, measurement, it, it affects the, what is observed. It actually helps create the result that you get. And so I I'm, could be inferring this, but I think on a larger scale, the notion of measure might be important for Simon, Simon Dome because, again, if, if you are only operating in an analogical, in a, in a old school kind of traditional analogical way of thinking, then measurement is kind of just a convenient heuristic, a way of looking at something that helps you understand the thing. But uh, if knowledge is individuated in the process itself, in the process of trying to like know individuation or understand individuation, then it again it goes back to I think what you said earlier, Al Dreams, that you know of, of having to be intimately sort of like in the process in order to understand it. That you can't. Uh, there's no measurement that isn't itself part of the 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 process of both, I don't know, cre creating or affecting the thing being studied, but also, you know, understanding that, I guess, the continuum at the end of the day, um, if that makes any sense. So, like, and again, if we look at the science example that he brought up of um, sound and smell and whatnot, that, like, illegitimately starting from concepts alone led to a kind of almost dead scientific dead end, uh, Whereas there's a need for, you know, the measure needs to almost fit exactly uh, and, and grow alongside of the, the thing being studied. So there's like a co-individuation of the knowledge and, the, you know, to partake in the individuation, it just goes back that there has to be an individuation in thought in order to even partake of it. So that, that pure kind of analogy, it isn't, it's no longer just a question of thinking interesting things about something but participating directly in its reality i think yeah i think that's um maybe a good place to, to stop for today um we'll pick up from here next time um we're almost at the end of the, of the subsection so um it's, it's kind of too bad that um we didn't get to finish it but um yeah so we'll finish the last couple of small paragraphs of the subsection uh, next time, and then we'll get to the next section um, on uh, particle and energy. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see again, like uh, two of the subsections of, of that uh, section are the are, are on induction and deduction. Uh, so we'll see more on on the relation between transductive thought and um, inductive and, and deductive thought uh, next time, uh, and probably the, the following time after that as well. So thank you everyone for your um, participation for your questions and, and comments. I think maybe next time we can um, probably do without um, server muting everyone uh, to start with. Uh, I just wanted to make sure we didn't have a, a repeat of last week, but uh, thanks everyone and see you all next week.